If you're new here, my name is Ryan Carver. I'm one of the elders here who are part of Gulf Coast Community Church. Jerry, uh, he's on vacation right now in North Carolina. He might be back. I don't know where he's floating right now, him and Donna, but they were staying at a, uh, a cabin in North Carolina uh, for ministry leaders, and so I just continue to think how, um, you know, hopefully they had a chance to hear God's voice and to slow down, to rest. And Jerry's been walking us through uh, Ephesians lately, and we've been in this long-running series titled Imagining the Kingdom. And in this series, we've really been trying to articulate what it looks like to live in the reality of God's kingdom. We've been trying to imagine what it looks like and have a vision for how we as a church can join into God's kingdom mission. And so... I think uh, the message today will also fall right into our uh, sermon series. There's a couple books that uh, I'd love to recommend to you as a congregation. One would be um, The Gospel of King Jesus. It's an older book, uh, like a decade, uh, by Scott McKnight. And then there's one that we're really, uh, we would love for everyone in our, in, in our church, in, in this church here, for us uh, to, to read would be The Gospel Precisely by Matthew Bates. The Gospel Precisely. And you'll see some of the themes that are in these books come out today. So let's get at it. Before we pray, I just want to give us a little context. So our text today is going to be 1 Corinthians chapter 2. Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, And so it was with me, brothers and sisters, when I came to you, I did not come with eloquence or human wisdom as I proclaimed to you the testimony about God. For I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Now the writer of 1 Corinthians, Paul, here he is, he begins by stating that he's not attempting to model Uh, the eloquent and lofty-sounding voices of his day. Instead, he's coming, proclaiming the unfolding plan of God as it's been revealed in and through Jesus Christ and his crucifixion. And though this, this, this is a different type of wisdom, it's not human wisdom, it's a, it's a wisdom from God, a wisdom that God has planned since the beginning. He's worked it out through history, and he's revealing it by the power of his Holy Spirit. And so church, even in this time, we need God's Spirit to work. We need God's Spirit to work in power. We need his power not only to help us understand the truths and the implications of Jesus Christ and him crucified, but we need the power of God's Spirit to help us walk out these implications, to help us live out what we're learning as we leave here. But I want to encourage you, church. I, I have seen, I've seen, I've seen, and I've seen you all, many of you, walking out allegiance to Jesus, walking out your faith in ways where your lives are submitted to his rule and reign, and you're, you're displaying his kingdom as you serve one another, as you walk alongside one another. And I know that for some of us in this room, it may not feel like you've done anything amazing. 
It may not feel like there's anything that you could, you know, highlight or as, as, as is much today, post on Instagram or whatnot. But through you, many of you, the power of God has been displayed. It's an encouragement to me. It's an encouragement to us as we see it. Often it goes unseen. Often it's in secret, just a few of us in this congregation. But I have the privilege of seeing that, and I'm amazed by your allegiance to King Jesus. So Paul realized the need for God's Spirit to do a powerful work. Let's pray for that right now. And so, Father, we, we come to you. We know that you are working. And Holy Spirit, we ask that you would come in power through your words, affecting hearts, changing lives. Give us ears to hear, eyes to see Jesus for who he truly is. And display your power through our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, Gulf Coast, I identify with Paul in these words right here. I'm not coming with eloquence. I'm not trying to sway you with wisdom of this world. All I want to do this morning, I have, I have one real big goal. And it's to deliver a message regarding Jesus Christ, the King who was crucified. That's my attempt this morning. And I, I recently I, I preached a message, message called uh, The Call of the King. And it focused on Jesus' words, repent and believe for the kingdom of God is near. And we talked about the personal gospel, the communal gospel, and the cosmic gospel. You might want to check that out. A lot of those themes are going to kind of be scattered through this message today. And you'll see some of those themes, but let us not ever get uh, used to or um, callous to, or, or it, may the gospel always amaze us. And that's, that's my hope for us today, that we would be amazed afresh by the gospel truths shared today, but also be equipped to uh, proclaim the gospel to those around us, as Paul did even with the Corinthians. And I've, I've been talking about the gospel and, and King Jesus for a long time now. I realized that even as I was preparing this message, we, um, there was a, a team of us that had been on the campus, USF campus. A lot of you are here because of that. But for years, we were, we, we were, we were working on how do we share the gospel with students and we had used some of the traditional means, and, and we, we found that they didn't really land. They, they, there, were, there were some things where once we proclaimed the, the, the gospel in these ways, we were left with, now, now what? And, and, and so we started, we started really contemplating the gospel and how, how to share it. And when we started to um, invite students uh, to hear about King Jesus and how he, he wanted to be king over rebels— he wanted to be king over rebels who had turned from him. And then, and then we invited them to, to join into his restoration. It, it, gave, it, put, it kind of put feet to the message, and it gave them something to grab onto. We began to show students that God was inviting them into part of his kingdom now to join with him on this mission. It gave them a pathway to enter into, a, like, the, to join in with God, to uh, enter into the broken world. Rebels, redeemed, who would go into the broken world and, and, and go and, and proclaim King Jesus and, and bring help and healing to those who are still trapped in, in the snares of, of wanting to be their own kings. 
And they began to see the purpose of the gospel. They began to see the why of the gospel. So that's my question to you guys to start out. What would you say is the gospel? We see in Scripture that the gospel is the proclamation that Jesus is king. The gospel is the proclamation. Jesus is king. Now, what would you say is the purpose of the gospel? Just think now in your heads a little bit. What would you say? The first and primary reason God gave us the gospel is because we need a king. So the gospel is we, that Jesus is the king, and the purpose is because we need a king. And to be clear here, I'm not presenting anything new. There's nothing new in these words. But what I'm trying to make sure we do as, as a church is understand the gospel in such a way that will strengthen us in our faith and in our witness. Jesus is king, and all the benefits that flow from that gospel truth, we find those, those benefits that flow from the gospel truth that Jesus is king. We find true life when we give loyalty to King Jesus, the glory restorer, and we pursue his agenda. So Jesus is king, and all the benefits that we know come from that. And to be sure, Jesus is creator, right? Jesus is savior. He's provider. He's a high priest. All these things are true. But the gospel, the good news, is that Jesus reigns over all. He's king and everything else is because of that truth. All right, so let me explain. The title of this message is Proclaiming King Jesus, and our three points are the hope of a king, the humility of the king, and the honor of the king. We'll conclude with the restoration. The hope of a king. I'm going to read it again. Paul says, And so it was with me, brothers and sisters, when I, come to, when I came to you, I did not come with eloquence or human wisdom as I proclaimed to you the testimony about God. For I resolved to know nothing was with you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Paul decided to focus his teachings to the Corinthian church about Jesus the Christ and him crucified. This was the focal point as he was addressing the Corinthian church. And the Corinthian church was a faithful group of, of followers of Jesus. But they had a, a number of relational issues. I mean, the list goes on of the problems within the church. Some were going off on the deep end in their sinful behavior. We could read that in, in, in the letter. And that's a reminder to us that whatever issues we have as a church... It's not very different from the early church. We have a lot of issues in our church. We have a lot of, we, we, there is this temptation toward division. There's a temptation toward gossip. There's, there, there are different sinful patterns that some of us have in, in our congregation. But it was, it's no different than when the letters were penned in the, in the early days, soon after Jesus came to this earth, died, was raised, descended to heaven. The early church formed, and then we see very quickly there were problems in the church. And as Paul describes his time spent with the Corinthians, he resolved to do nothing except Jesus Christ and him crucified. That was his message. That was his remedy. That was the way he would redirect and, 
and remind the Corinthians of their call to King Jesus. Now, when we see the word Christ, let's remember, it's a claim, not a name. It's a claim, not a name. Christ means Messiah in Hebrew, the anointed one. And those that were anointed with oil were priests. They were kings. They were prophets. But in the Old Testament, the Messiah came to be especially known with a coming king. The Corinthians knew, they, they needed, Paul knew that they needed to hear about Jesus, the king's rule over this world. They needed to know about the king's rule over their community. And they needed to know about his rule over each one of them individually as well. And this truth is also one that must, it has to take root in our minds and hearts. They needed their lives and, and all their hopes and everything centered around the king. And so do we, Gulf Coast. We see in scripture that in the beginning, God speaks of humans made in God's image who are given the task to rule creation on God's behalf. But humans, they, they wanted to decide for themselves. Adam and Eve, they wanted to decide for themselves what was good and evil. They didn't want God to be their authority. They didn't trust God. They rejected his, his rule over them, and they rejected God's rule through them over creation. Murder, division, wars, greed, all of these things begin to fill the pages of Scripture soon after. And yet God promised to do something about it. He promised to do something about it, and the storyline of Scripture shows this as the plan unfolds. It never surprised God. It was never plan B. You know, this, is, this is all under God's plan. God speaks to Abraham in Genesis 12. He promises to bless all the nations through Abraham's offspring. And then later he gives a, a more specific promise to King David. King David was appointed to be king of God's identified people group at that time. They're called the Israelites, sometimes called the Jews. They were the Hebrews. Listen to the words with this promise to King David. Psalm 89, 3-4 say this. The Lord said, I've made a covenant with my chosen one. I've sworn an oath to David, my servant. I will establish your offspring forever and build up your throne for all generations. Moving forward in history, we see the nation of Israel rejecting God and his ways repeatedly. You have the Assyrians that come in and in 722 and then the Babylonians in 586 B.C., and they, they crushed the nation. God warned them that this would happen, but they were idolatrous. They continued to reject God's ways, and these nations came in. They, they crushed the nation, destroyed their temple. They took captives. Remember the promises to David, the promises to Abraham. But in this time, it seemed like everything was lost. It seemed like all hope was lost. I mean, God's people were, were, their nation was destroyed. Their families were ripped apart. There was no king. There was no power. There was no future. And yet the prophets kept speaking of God's promises to David of an eternal throne fulfilled. 
Now hear these words from Isaiah, speaking of hope, of a future king. These are the the promises that God's people clung to. These these are the promises that reminded them of what God was planning all along. Isaiah 9. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders. He will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the greatness of his government and peace there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. What a promise in dark times. Another prophet, Jeremiah, talks about the hope of a king. Once again, Jeremiah 23, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, a king who will reign wisely and do what is just and right in the land. In his days, Judah will be saved and Israel will live in safety. This is the name by which he will be called the Lord our righteous Savior. The Old Testament is filled with this type of language, always looking forward with hope to a king in dark times. Now, to those in this time, it looked as if God's promises of a forever king and kingdom had failed. But God's promises never fail. God's promises never fail. God says, as recorded in Isaiah, my word that goes out from my mouth It will not return to me empty, but will accomplish what I desire and achieve the purpose for which I sent it. Again, God's promises will not fail. It seems like it sometimes, though. God's prophets announced that the Messiah's reign would bring justice, peace, safety, prosperity and blessings. The Messiah's reign and governance would be incomparable in universal significance, unmatched, and not just for the nation of Israel, but reaching the far ends of the earth, often known as the Gentiles. And the Messiah would be a Jewish king with so much international influence that his rule would benefit the nations. This was the promise. It wasn't just for the Jewish people. It would expand. There was a hope for a good and marvelous king, a king like no other. This was the hope. Now, Gulf Coast family, I I know many of you are are struggling. I know that some of you, your bodies are failing. You have health concerns just on, on top of each other. Health concerns, health concerns. You have financial issues. There's fear even as we look at our country and the things going on. God's promises never fail. There's a hope. He's working. And for the skeptic, I'm sure there's some skeptics in this room. You may not believe the storyline of Scripture, but I challenge you. Go back and trace the historical facts. Look into what the Bible says. The Old Testament Scriptures. Those that we have in our hands, they've been preserved like no other book. And trace the history of the Jewish people and their struggle through, through other writings outside of this. You'll see their hope, and then when you get to the claims of Jesus, consider if the story is true. It really is the, the greatest story ever told, and it reveals 
a God of trustworthiness, reveals a God of compassion. It's like no other religion that has ever been presented. The storyline of Scripture, the character of God, all wrapped up in his promises and his promises fulfilled, set itself apart from every other religion, every other claim on the faces of this earth and consider these things. But that brings us to our second point, the humility of the king. Now in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 2, Paul speaks of Jesus the Messiah king and him crucified. Before he was crucified, the eternal God took on human form. Right? He, he came as a baby. He was born through a virgin. And he lived as a human. 100% God, 100% man. This is why the gospel writer begins his gospel letter with, the gospel writer John begins his gospel letter with, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. Verse 14, he goes on, the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We've seen his glory, the glory of the one and only son who came from the father, full of grace and truth. And then the gospel writer Luke goes on and he gives a, a genealogy of Jesus. He shows his family line going all the way back to Adam. Why does he do that? Because he's, he's showing that, that Jesus comes from the same roots as us. He was fully human and fully God. He shows his life. Jesus' life was unique, though. He, his life and perfect obedience to God's ways were unlike any other human. Often he's, he's called this the second Adam because he was God in the flesh. And there was hope of a Messiah king. And for most Jews who knew the promises in Scripture, they were looking for a royal Messiah who had come through the line of David. They were looking. Some are still looking. And this is why the gospel writer, Matthew, starts with the genealogy that chases Jesus' family line back through David all the way to Abraham. He's showing all the promises of Scripture fulfilled. Good look, Matthew 1, there's a genealogy. It goes all the way back to David and then to Abraham. There's, there's a purpose. He's showing that he must come through the line of David. Why? Because that was God's plan all along. He's tracing it back. There was an eager expectation for the Messiah King. They were looking for him. Even the gospel according to Mark starts off this way. The beginning of the good news about Jesus the Messiah, the Son of God. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Often in our Bibles it doesn't say it nowadays, but it says the gospel according to Matthew, the gospel according to Mark, and so on. If you want to know the gospel, you look in these, these books that we're given within the Bible. And Mark 1 starts out, the beginning of the good news about Jesus the Messiah, the Son of God. And then moving forward in verse 14, he says how Jesus began his public ministry by proclaiming the gospel of God. Jesus' first words recorded in Mark's gospel are this, the time has come, the kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. So what is the good news? That Jesus is the long-awaited king. And he's bringing in his kingdom. He's bringing in his kingdom. The hope of a king 
It turned into a, a tangible reality as, as Jesus entered into our world, as God became a man. It was tangible. It was visible. It was in, in, in his royal presence, his royal actions, his, his royal message even, was of kingship where all hope had been pointing toward. You get what I'm you know, hammering in? King. Jesus is king. And it matters. We have to get it first. Jesus is king first. His life mattered for his kingship as it was part of God's unfolding plan to restore all that was broken and to unite everything in and through Jesus the king. We've been learning about this in Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 1. And yet the way in which God's plan unfolded and the way Jesus became king, it was nothing like any other king in the way that anyone could imagine. His plan unfolding, it was a mystery to many. They saw hints of it. The prophets spoke of it, but they, never, they couldn't see it in full. And we, on the other side of things, we can see. We can see what has happened in, throughout history. We have the Bible to point to that. The Bible to remind us that God always keeps his promises. We're part of that promise. And God is continuing to work. And if you've been with us for any amount of time, you might have heard God's kingdom referred to as an upside-down kingdom. I was talking to Mike Miller uh, this week, and he had mentioned, it's not really uh, upside-down. It's actually right-side-up. You know, like Jesus' ways are right, you know, and it's not upside-down. Well, are we're upside-down. <laughs> I agree. And so, but from our vantage point, it seems like everything God does is the exact opposite of how we experience the use of, the use of power, the use of position in our world. God's kingdom is, is otherworldly. It doesn't make sense with human wisdom. We need a kingdom imagination to see it, to understand it. The Bible helps us with that. The Bible gives us that. Isaiah 55, 8 through 9 says this, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. And that's how it should be. This is a God that, that, that claims, that 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 shows, that reveals. He's unlike any other king that, that on the face of this earth. He's unlike any other God presented. And this is the God that we could show off. A God where his ways are unique and different. Upside down to those on this side of eternity. And we're seeing his ways are right. We're seeing that his kingdom is good and beautiful and a way for us as we enter into his kingdom and we join in with him, it's a way for our world to be restored on earth as it is in heaven. As we join in with what God is doing. Now in the first century AD, there was a group of people called the Zealots. And the Zealots, you might, you might know that one of the disciples was a Zealot. It's interesting. I mean, you think about it. You have a, a zealot on Jesus' team of disciples next to a, a tax collector, Matthew. I mean, Matthew worked for the government, collecting taxes, getting money from people, and they would look at him and be like, why are you taking, you're stealing my money, basically, to give to the government that has oppressed us. Matthew was dearly hated by people. 
because of that. Tax collectors were the lowest of the low in the Jewish eyes. And then you have the zealots, and the zealots thought that they could somehow overthrow Rome. And we have recorded in history even by Josephus, the Roman uh, historian of zealot groups who tried to put possible kingly messiahs into power with hopes of overthrowing the Romans. I just imagine Matthew and the, and, 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 and the zealot disciple who were walking together, who spent time together, who were learning what it means to follow Jesus together. I mean, those initial conversations must have just been, like, just fighting, like, you know, like, yeah, just, just it, it must have been chaos. I mean, they probably got into some fist fights. I mean, what, what would you do? You have a guy that wants to overthrow the government, and then you have a guy working for the government. But these zealots were looking. They were looking for a king, and they were ready to raise him up. And, the, and there were other people, other groups of people, even the Jews, they thought that Jesus was going to come as a king in, in power, that they, in worldly power, and they were trying to put him forward to overthrow all the powers that were oppressing them, to set things right. But what do we know about Jesus? I mean, he demonstrated a different type of kingship and a different type of revolution. He came from a small town no one cared about. He spent time with outcasts and the lowly. He served others. And and the basis of his teaching was to love your enemies. It went against everything that people would would, would think of as the way a king would function. Even his own expectations for those who would follow him were upside down. Most kings want their subjects to serve them, but instead he told his followers to serve others. He told his followers to build others up, to care for others as he did. Jesus' life, it was important because it was how he gave his marching orders to those who would join him in his upside-down revolution toward restoration. And so if the gospel is that Jesus is king, then discipleship is allegiance to the king. It's always been in God's plan for his people to rule the earth as his image bearers and as his representatives. And how do we do that? By loving and serving others just as Jesus did. We could stare at his life. We can learn from his life and follow in his ways. He's shown us what it means to live in his kingdom and follow him. And his death was the culmination of his humility, the culmination of his compassion. This is the humble king we're called to follow. And it doesn't make sense according to worldly wisdom, as Paul says in verse 1 of our main text. But it is what our king has shown us It's what he's lived out, and it's what he calls us to as his people. So why do we need a king? Why do we give allegiance to King Jesus? Because we make very bad kings. I make a very bad king. Y'all make very bad kings. We need a king to follow, a good king, King Jesus. Now, there have been numerous examples of hypocrisy that have turned people away, even disillusioned them from the church. Now, to be clear, we are all a work in progress. I'm a hypocrite in, 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 in many ways, and God is revealing that. But by his grace, hopefully I'm changing. I think I'm changing to be more like Jesus. 
But there's a particular hypocrisy that has turned a lot of people away from the church. It's when church leaders and various people use their power to get what they want. They use their position. And I would just say that those people, it seems like they have not submitted to King Jesus' reign. Instead, somehow they are using their power to reign. And so for those who are disillusioned, and we could speak this to those that we meet, and King, King Jesus came and brought himself low. He humbled himself. And, and as followers of Jesus, we're called to do the same. In Jesus' day, many who liked aspects of Jesus for a time, they stopped following King Jesus when they learned that he expected more than a mental notion of trusting him. I would suggest we help people see God's call in their lives to be loyal to him, to learn from him and walk in ways, in his ways, instead of counting numbers of those who pray to get saved. Dallas Willard calls people who only want Jesus for his blood and the forgiveness of sins, vampire Christians. <laughs> vampire Christians. They just want him for his blood. They just want him for forgiveness of sins. I believe he would even say they probably aren't Christians if that's all they came to Jesus for forgiveness of sins, personal salvation. It's so much more than that. As we look to King Jesus, the one who, who rules and reigns and calls us, he captures us, really. He captures our hearts. He turns rebels into followers. We live our lives under his rule, submitting, trusting in him, the honor of the king. Third point. Because all of this is to bring honor to, to King Jesus, the one who is a humble king. We're, we're called to emulate him as his representatives and as those who trust him, bringing honor to the king, we represent him with our lives. We see this laid out in a poem or a song that was probably recited uh, many times. I'm going to turn to Philippians chapter 2. Let's just start in verse 3. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests. But each of you, look to the interests of others. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. You hear those words there? Follow the ways of King Jesus. Just as Jesus has shown you, now you do this, follow in his ways. King Jesus, who being in the very nature of God, picking up in verse six, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue, every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And here we have Jesus' kingship in view, his, his crucifixion, his exaltation. We must consider the proclamation of our king to follow him put our faith in him, to, to be Christians, 
to be followers of Jesus. We give our loyalty and our allegiance to him. And this is our response. As we walk out to be part of his kingdom, his, his, his people, he promises to empower us. He promises to empower his people. What he calls the new Israel. His image bearers that represent him and bring him glory and honor as we join in with him in his mission to rescue and restore our broken world. Listen with me about the, with some verses here. There's many more, but I just want to read a few that talk about allegiance to King Jesus. Matthew 16, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will find it. Luke 9, If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. 1 Peter 2, To this you were called, because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. In 1 John chapter 2, We know that we have come to know him if we obey his commandments. The man who says, I know him, but does not do what he commands is a liar, and the truth is not in him. As we go in even to the letter of 1 Corinthians 15, look with me what Paul says. 1 Corinthians 15 verse 1. Now, brothers and sisters, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and on which you have taken your stand. By this gospel, you are saved. And if you hold firmly to the word I preached to you, otherwise you believed in vain. For what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, God's plan, his promises, always and forever that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve. There's an expectation here of continued allegiance to Jesus. The cross and the resurrection, they're important, but we can't miss his kingship. We can't miss God's call in our lives to follow the king as well. Jesus is king, and he calls us to follow him, the good king. Now, you may be struggling, even right now, some of you, with doubt. Maybe you're struggling, uh, even uh, sensing uh, a joy of the Lord, a, a gladness that you once had. And I know that there are uh, commands in Scripture to rejoice, and, 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 but when we think of Jesus as King and we consider our allegiance to Him, there are times when an, alle- when an allegiance to our King, we are not feeling it. We are not feeling that, but we walk in obedience. We yield to his reign. I think sometimes of how my family, I, I'm allegiant to my, my family, right? My, 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 my wife and my kids. There are days where I am not feeling joyful in the ways that I'm committed, loyal to my family, but I stick to it. I get the do the laundry, you know, do the laundry, clean the house, be patient when I, you know, as much, you know, like by God's grace, I'm, I'm clinging to my, with loyalty, and I don't always feel a joy in that service, in my role, in my calling, my good calling as a, a dad and a husband. And maybe that's like that for you. Maybe you are lacking in joy. But God calls us 
to submit to King Jesus and to be allegiant to him. And so be encouraged. If, you're not, if you don't have the emotions today, just ask yourself, do I have allegiance to Jesus? Do I trust him as my king? Paul spent time with the Corinthians and he taught the gospel and then used the truths of the gospel of King Jesus to redirect the, the Corinthians in all their conflicts, their idolatry, and their sinful practices. And we see the same pattern in scripture over and over again. He called them to follow the king, to lay down their own interests and, and lay down their lives uh, in such a way that they would serve others. We're called as God's people to image God, to rule over the earth in the ways of Jesus. We're called to give the world a taste of the kingdom that has come and is fully coming one day. And that day is when heaven and earth will meet. They will unite. And Jesus will sit on his throne among us. It will be a restored creation. And until then, we have a role, Gulf Coast. Jesus' disciples were identified as the beginning of a new Israel as promised by God long ago, and they were sent out in his authority to go and make more disciples, teaching them to obey all that Jesus commanded, teaching them to obey all that he commanded. They learned from Jesus, and they were empowered by Jesus to carry on his kingdom mission. And if we are God's people, those who claim loyalty to him, we too are sent in the same authority of King Jesus. This is our purpose King Jesus' commands are our marching orders. And to follow him means we will look uh, for where God is at work, and then we'll join in with him. We'll join in with him bringing justice and beauty and peace to this very broken world. The gospel of King Jesus affects all we do everywhere. The good news invites others into a life under the king's good and compassionate rule. So what does it look like? What does it look like for you to speak about the hope, the humility of the king as you honor him by joining in with him in his restoration project? What does it look like for your life as you follow in Jesus' ways and reflect King Jesus to a watching world that's crying out for restoration? These are questions that we need to take to the Lord in prayer. We need to ask, be asking. If you're like, I don't know where my mission is. I don't know what I'm supposed to do. That's what we pray. God, where are you at work and where can I join in? You are king. I'm loyal to you. Now show me my marching steps. Show me where I'm to go. Everywhere we go, we're to rule as God's co-agents, commissioned to live in such a way that emulate Jesus. And this means, Gulf Coast, this means that our workplaces need the glory of God. This means that our workplaces need God in, in his glory displayed as we image Christ to those around us. Your workplace is not some other distant thing where, where and, then you, and then we go gather here and it's, it's a Jesus thing. Your workplace is a, is a place that is holy because of where you are there. You are God's set-apart people, and we're called to image him in every way. So how can you, how can we be humble? How can we be kind? How can we show people what it looks like to know Jesus? How can we show people what it looks like to follow Jesus as we, 
put their interests first. As we build and work and craft with, with excellence, as we do our work well, as we seek peace with our neighbors, first we have to get to know their names, and then we seek peace with them. We learn where there's brokenness. We speak words of truth. We speak words of life. And then we walk alongside them. How do we walk alongside our neighbors? Bringing peace just as Jesus did. God, where are you at work and where can I join in? This means we're to enter the places of deep brokenness. Where are those places? Where is God calling you to? Is there a unique people group? Something that you identify, a group that you identify with, maybe because of the struggles that you went in, you know their pain, you know their suffering. How do you bring help and healing? How do you bring shalom, the way things should be, to them? These are all questions. Just ask God. Ask him to show you. Walk in the, in the places. Dwell with the people that you feel like you might be called to, and you will see where God is at work and where you can join in. You will see where you could be his image bearers. It, it doesn't have to be elaborate. But when we proclaim, how can we proclaim his hope? How can we proclaim his humility? How can we call people to follow a good king? One that's like no other. May God work in us to live for the king, Gulf Coast. So that's our prayer, God. Help us to live for you. Help us to see you as a good king. And live for you. We need your power. Holy Spirit, empower us. Compel us. Help us to see the compassion and humility of Jesus that launches us out of our comfort zones and moves us out of our distractions. We know your marching orders, God. Help us to walk them. In Jesus' name, amen.